morning, UBC. It's really good to be here with you. I'm honored to have the opportunity to preach for the first time for all of you. Um, as uh, many of you know, we started a new sermon series last week called Vital Signs. And this sermon series was birthed out of a desire uh, from the leaders of our community to take the pulse of our community here at UBC. In checking for vital signs, we determined we could use our mission statement as a metric to evaluate the health of our community. So we went over our mission statement earlier. If you all remember, we can repeat it one more time. Here at UBC, we are passionate about creating Jesus-loving, inclusive communities that ignite the city. Great job. All right, so today we are in, uh, focusing on the second word, which is inclusive. So as we're evaluating how well we uphold this value of inclusivity here at UBC, how do we measure if we are being inclusive? And that's kind of the question that we're gonna be exploring today. And as a precursor to that, I wanna talk a little bit about the social structures that we live under. Now, people who study intersectionality argue that our identities based on race, class, gender, and sexuality accompany us in every social interaction. So these identities form the axes of social structure. We have race, class, and gender or sexuality. So I'm gonna draw these out. I'm a visual person, so. We have race, class, and gender or sexuality, and these kind of govern all of the uh, social interactions that we have. And naturally then, it is along these same axes of social structure that we also find the axes of oppression. So we find that most, if not all, of social oppression can be mapped along these axes of race, class, and gender. For example, in her book, Women, uh, Race, and Class, Angela Davis writes about how the various feminist movements over the past century have been plagued with whiteness and elitism. In their effort to battle the axis of oppression that is gender, these feminist movements have ignored race and class. And thus the feminist movements have failed to be fully inclusive. So if we are to do better as UVC, if we are to uphold this value of inclusivity, we must address all three of these structures of oppression with an intersectional lens. Now in the book of Galatians, Paul writes in response to Judaizers. The Judaizers were a specific group of Jewish people who wanted to impose Mosaic law on Gentile converts. For example, they wanted new Gentile converts to undergo circumcision and to observe Jewish laws of cleanliness. So for the Judaizers, the law was what distinguished them from the Greeks, so they wanted to cling to that and hold on to that. But listen to what Paul says about the law in our passage. He says, now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's a lot of content going on there, so let's break that down a little bit. So Paul says that this law is a prison, is a disciplinarian. 
So what the Judaizers were clinging to in this Mosaic law was actually holding them down and imprisoning them. But Paul also says that this law is now dead, that in Christ we are freed from having to observe the law. Now, while the law that Paul speaks of is specifically the Mosaic law, I believe that there's a strong parallel that can be drawn between the law that Paul speaks of and the societal structure that we live in today. Like a prison, the laws of society lock us into racial inequity, class divisions, and patriarchal gender roles. And it's very fascinating to note that in this passage, Paul actually names all three of these axes of oppression in this passage. Intersectionality researchers are studying these things now that Paul was talking about centuries ago. Did you catch it in the passage where he talks about all three? He names all three. He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So we have uh, the contrast between Jew and Greek, and that is kind of race, ethnicity, religion. We have uh, class, we have the comparison between slave and free. And for gender, male and female. So Paul names all three of these categories in this passage. Where in our earlier example, the feminist movement we saw how one axis of social oppression was upheld to the neglect of the two others, we see in this passage that Paul is naming all three axes of social oppression here. And I believe that that's no accident, because in Christ, the law of societal oppression is obliterated in every category. So it renders all of us equal. There is no race, class, or gender in heaven. These constructs that were erected to benefit only those at the top of each category, uh, at the top of each category of identity, these all crumble in the face of Christ. Now I like that Paul uses this imagery of being clothed with Christ. My work here at UVC is actually in addition to my day job, or what might be better called my night job since I work at night as a bartender. I work at this place called Soho House, which is a fancy, exclusive, members-only club where we all, uh, as you can imagine, have to wear a uniform because um, it's like basically like a rebranded uh, country club. So we're all wearing uniforms if you work there. And those uniforms actually gain us access to that space. So um, at the Soho House, we'll throw parties. We'll um, invite artists in, and it's a very on-demand, in-demand, sorry, place to be um, where a lot of people want to line up, a lot of people want to get in, and you can only get in if you're a member or you're on the guest list um, or if you're working there. And so I've had the pleasure of being able to be at some of these concerts that we've had just by virtue of working there. You know, the other night we had Tanashi come through, we had Erica Badu come through at one point, which was incredible. Um, so just by virtue of having my uniform, the security guards will look at me, and it doesn't matter what else I have going on, they can see that I work at Soho, and so I have gained access to that space. 
my uniform then supersedes any of my other identities and gains me access. And that same kind of access is what we are given when we're clothed with Christ, except that the privileges we enjoy are the spoils of heaven. We have access to joy, to peace, to love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace, all because we wear Christ. But Paul doesn't describe our relationship to each other as co-workers under Christ, like my co-workers and I at Soho. But instead, he calls us something else that is actually really beautiful. He calls us all, does anybody remember the word he calls us? Children. So, in Christ, we are all children of God. And there are a few things about us, uh, about this being called children that I want to note for us here. So instead of having these categories of race, class, and gender, we are all together seen as children. And the first beautiful thing about being called children is that we are all related to each other. We're all part of the same family of God. We're on the same team, all of us. Every human being on this planet, being a child of God, is your sibling, your brother, or your sister. Another beautiful thing to note about our status as children of God is that it means we are permanently family. Once you're adopted into a new family, there's no going back. You are legally bound to that family for life. And the same goes for our spiritual adoption. We never have to fear abandonment because we know we are always permanently a part of God's family. Yet another thing to note by our being called children is that we are all equalized. So these categories of race, class, and gender are just leveled, and instead we are all equal under this category of being children. It doesn't matter if you're 99 years old or you're nine years old, you are my sibling in Christ. There's no hierarchy of any kind of roles. We all share the same sibling relationship to Christ. And finally, the incredible thing about being children of God is that we are all heirs. We inherit the kingdom of God. And if you've been around UVC, you've probably heard that term before, kingdom. And it refers to the idea of a kingdom without a king, without the hierarchy of a ruling force or dictatorship. Instead, we are all kin in the kingdom of God. This is a, a theological concept that comes from the Muharista theologian Ada Maria Asasi Diaz. She's really amazing. I uh, recommend you check her out if you haven't before. Um, but this idea of kingdom, as kin, we are all heirs. It's not just those at the top of the race or gender or class hierarchy who are heirs, it's everybody. Now, it's important to note here that just because our status according to the worldly categories of race class, and gender is rendered irrelevant in Christ, that doesn't mean that our unique identities in Christ disappear. I am still a proud, non-binary, trans, second-generation Cantonese American. But I recognize that these categories are social constructs that are temporary, and that the kingdom of God surpasses them. See, we live in a time that some theologians call the already but not yet. Christ has come and established the kingdom of God, but we live in a time before its full manifestation on earth. 
By the work of Christ, the law has been done away with. All three axes of oppression have already been obliterated. Yet we live under the oppression of race, class, and gender every day. So what do we do with that? Well, I think this is why Paul calls us children of faith. It takes faith to live in this already but not yet time, to live into a reality that has not yet fully been manifested. So this then, saints, ought to be the measure of our inclusivity, not how many of X demographic are in the room, but how are we living into our faith as children of God? How do we live into the kingdom realities of relatedness, permanent family, equity, and heirship? How are we resisting the law of societal oppression that seeks to divide and diminish among the lines of race, class, and gender? How many of you have seen the TV show, This Is Us? Have you seen that before? Yeah, it's a pretty good show. I'll admit I did give up on it after a few seasons because it was just so painfully heteronormative and like nuclear family centric. Uh, but before I stopped watching, my favorite storyline in the series was about Deja. Deja is a young teenager taken in as a foster kid by the Pearson family, a black family consisting of Randall and Beth and their two daughters. Now Deja has survived an incredibly troubled childhood and a lot of abuse, so she sometimes acts out in the show. Still, Beth and Randall and their family eventually tell Deja that they'd like to adopt her. During this time, Randall's doing very well. He uh, bought a new car, a Mercedes. I don't know what he does for work, but I'd like to find out because he's doing really well. Um, and then after that, the family is at a wedding and they drive the new car and um, they're at the wedding and Deja is talking to another family member and suddenly Deja is triggered by something that that family member says. And so she grabs a baseball bat and she takes it to the brand new car and just destroys it and takes out all of the windows and everything. And so this happens actually at the very end of season two in the finale, so we don't get to see what happens after that. And we're kind of wondering what's gonna happen with this whole adoption process at, after Deja smashes this car. I kind of figured, you know, the adoption is off, she smashed their car, Deja's going home. But no, in the very next episode, we see Deja actually signing her adoption papers and she joins the Pearson family as their legally adopted daughter. That shit is beautiful and it's exactly the type of love with which we are embraced in Christ. Because not only are our race, class, and gender deemed irrelevant in the love of Christ, so are all our faults and our shortcomings, our destructive tendencies and our outbursts. Jesus says, those things don't matter to me. I love you. I want you. How does Christ bring this equalizing force that destroys the hierarchies of race, class, and gender? Well, he invites each and every one of us into his love. He says, I want you. I want you. I want you, I want you, I want all of you. I love all of you. He basically sings the Backstreet Boys song to us, you know? I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. <laughs> Can't believe I just sang that. Um, yeah, so he sings the Backstreet Boys to us. 
And that, fellow saints, is true inclusivity. This is the kind of all-pursuing love that is not deterred by who someone is or what they have done. It says, those things don't matter to me. I love you. And I want us to think about this kind of love here at UBC. How are we showing this kind of radically inclusive love to all, even those who don't seem deserving? Because let's be honest, sometimes it isn't those super removed and different from us that it's hardest to love. Sometimes it's the people in our own homes, our roommates, our neighbors, our family members. So I want to challenge each of us here to see people as Jesus does, with a radically inclusive love. A love that says, I love you and I want you, despite anything you have done or who you are, you are deserving of love. Because that, my friends, is exactly the kind of love with which we have been given in Christ. So may we extend that same love into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.